Hey, Hills Church, it is great to be with you. Welcome to everybody who's joining us live at one of our campuses, or if you're joining us online or later on podcast. All right, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. The second chapter of the book of Acts comes right after the Gospels. And so if you'll turn there, uh, I said earlier in this series that we were going to look at uh, what's known as the Day of Pentecost, and uh, and so this is this is the moment. Some of you have been waiting the whole whole series for us to get to this this point. And if you're brand new, uh, I'm so glad you're with us. We're in a series where we've been looking at the visible pictures of the invisible Spirit of God. We're calling it self portraits because uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the scriptures. And so the the Spirit is the artist. Some of the pictures we see, the visual imagery used in the scriptures about the Spirit, are these self portraits. So here we go. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to find this week's visible picture of the Spirit, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So what we have here is a moment when Jesus' followers were praying and and waiting together in one place. And they were doing that because Jesus had asked them to. After Jesus had risen from the grave, he had told his followers, all right, I'm about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And the the followers, the disciples, they witnessed this happen. But before that, Jesus says, but I need you to wait. Wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power from on high and you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Jesus had promised. And we just read the moment when Jesus' promise comes true. Just a side note, not going to preach on this, but Jesus' promises always come true. So that's what happens right here. And we have our image this week of the Spirit in connection with fire. So we're going to talk about this in a couple different ways. Uh, but first, in, in the day of Pentecost, here's what we see. The Spirit spreads like fire. This time last year uh, in California, the largest wildfire to date, in terms of acreage burned, was spreading across the state. It was known as the Ranch Fire. Well, just a few weeks ago, an investigative report came out that discovered the beginning of the Ranch Fire. And it was when a retired farmer was driving a metal stake into the ground and hit it with a hammer and a spark flew. Just that little moment. There were no charges because there was no negligence or or, or ill intent. It's just that this, this the spark hit and spread. And that little moment spread to over 410,000 acres that were burned in the ranch fire. Now that fire grew and spread for destructive purposes. But in, on the day of Pentecost, the fire begins to spread for God's purposes that are not to destroy but to bring about good news and witness to the world that Jesus is Lord. And think about this, with fire under certain conditions, fire can not only begin from seemingly out of nowhere but can spread and is basically nearly impossible to put out. That's what happened on this day, the day of Pentecost. If you're wondering what that word means, Pentecost just means 50 because it's 50 days after the Jewish festival Passover. 
And so it, it commemorates, this day of Pentecost, commemorates the day when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai and received the law from God. So that's why everybody's in Jerusalem remembering and celebrating. And so as the Spirit spreads, we already read one, one way that the Spirit spreads. We're going to see three pretty quickly. That the Spirit spreads to every place, to every race, and to every age. So first, look back at verse 3. We already read this, but you may have missed this. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, if you're a note taker, that word separated, some translations say divided, is really, really important. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, fire is used as a symbol of God's presence. Very common. Sometimes it's also a a symbol of, of God's judgment or God's power, but often his presence. But Everywhere that it happens, the fire is singular. So when God calls out to a a Hebrew named Moses and is going to raise him up as a leader, he calls out to him and speaks from a burning bush. Not not multiple places where this fire is burning, but there's one bush that's not being consumed by this fire because it's the Lord's fire. Then when God is going to lead his people in the wilderness, he leads by day with a pillar of cloud, but by night with a pillar of fire. But there's only one place because that's where God is. When the Israelites get to Sinai for the giving of the law that they're even remembering here on the day of Pentecost, the God's glory descends on Mount Sinai as fire. It's this fiery mountain. But there's not other mountains around that are covered in fire. There's only one because that's where God is. When the Israelites dedicate the temple, uh, then the, the glory of the Lord descends on the temple in fire. The fire's not in the synagogues, it's only in the temple because that's where God is. And then God manifests his presence, not through fire, but through flesh. And Jesus Christ is born, fully God and fully man. And have you ever thought about this? Jesus so bound himself to our human experience that he decided he would not be in Galilee and Samaria at the same time. That, that, that he wouldn't be in Nazareth and in Jerusalem on, in, in the same moment. In fact, there were people who would beg him to stay in their village and continue to wor- work and serve there, and Jesus would have to leave them to continue his teaching and preaching and healing ministry because God was only in one place. But then on this day, in this moment, the fire begins in one place. It has to begin in one place for it to separate. You understand that, right? Because here the fire in one place then divides, separates. And what is the point for us? The point is that on this day, the personal presence of God is no longer limited to one location. It's not at a temple. It's not, it's not in, in, on a mountain. It is wherever there is a follower of Jesus filled with the Spirit of God, there goes the fire of God's presence. So the Spirit spreads to every place. But then what we see next is that the spreading of the Spirit's fire is not over. These followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit begin to speak. The text says in other tongues. Really, that's not a great translation. It's really other dialects or other languages. And they begin to speak and look what happens starting in verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They're all there for the festival. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. 
utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Okay, pause for a moment. Like, Galilee, uh, Galilee is like kind of like a backwater, kind of redneck sort of, sort of town. So like, it would be, and like no offense to anybody from a small town in Texas, but it would kind of be like if all of a sudden you heard somebody from Merkel, Texas speaking perfect Mandarin Chinese, you'd be like, what's going on? If somebody from Dumas, Texas up in the panhandle it has fluent French under their belt, you're like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Like they are surprised. Sorry to anybody from Dumas or Merkel or any family members represented in the room. Look, the point is they're like, these are Galileans. What in the world? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And we have the representation of all these people groups. Now, I'm about to read these very fast, and that's so you don't know whether or not I messed up their pronunciation. Here we go. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Told you I'd go fast. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Now for you and I, what this means is that the Spirit is spreading to every ethnic group. That the Spirit is on a mission to spread like fire to every tribe, every tongue. What this means, if you're new and you're trying to understand what's church, like what's church supposed to be about? Well, on day one of the church of Jesus Christ, the Spirit was not intending to dwell among a homogenous people group, but the Spirit was going to reach every kind of people group. That means that even today, the heartbeat of God's church should be to love people who look different than us who are from different backgrounds than us, who speak different languages than us, who come from different nations than us, because all these people, the Spirit intends to reach and fill people from all different people groups. Earlier this year, we, uh, we had a uh, pastor, Kenny Hart, who we're proud to support. He and his church, The Gathering in Harlem, they're a brand new church. Well, Kenny came and he spoke and preached as part of our Let's Talk About Race series. He actually preached on this passage. So I'm not going to try and re-preach it because that day he was spitting fire. It was like really great message. It's online. You can check it out. But suffice it to say that from the beginning of the birth of the church, the church of Jesus Christ was unified in spirit but diversified in human form. That that's, that's how the church was born in reaching all these different people groups. So, verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Now, I can't camp out here, so just let me say this. From day one, the work of the Holy Spirit has been misunderstood and mocked. Ask yourself this, are you more prone to be one who is praying for and expecting and experiencing the Spirit's work, or are you more prone to be one who is skeptical or cynical that the Spirit is at work today? I can't help you with that. God's going to have to wrestle with you this week because we've got to keep moving. So here we go. Next up, we see the Spirit not only spreading to every place and to every people group, but now to, in a sense, every age, every demographic. After hearing that some think, oh, these these people, they're just drunk. Then a disciple named Peter, he stood up with the 11, the, the rest of the followers of Jesus. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, 
Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, Peter forgets, like, that doesn't stop everybody, but still. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And now he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And at all campuses, everybody read this last sentence with me. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Now this is what Peter declares, and check this, that's just his intro like, he's got more sermon to preach, and he, he preaches the gospel. But check this out. For our purposes today, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter references this promise in which the Spirit is poured out on, like, every type of person. What we have here is you've got, across class, gender, and generation, the Spirit being poured out. So you pick your qualifier, and it's represented here. In terms of gender, sometimes there's criticism, oh, the church is a patriarchy. Well, here we have men and women made to be filled with the Spirit of God in equal measure. If, if, you're, if you're wondering, well, the church is like, it's, it's all ranked on maturity level. Here we have, we have sons and daughters referenced. Not just those who receive the prophecy, but we have sons and daughters. We have younger generations, boys and girls, made to be filled with the Spirit of God. You want to work off class or social status? Here we have not just the the Israelites, but even their servants receiving the Spirit of God. Now, I know at at our church, whenever whenever someone's preaching a sermon, there's all kinds of people who are listening in terms of, of if you go off like, you know, social class, you go off like resume, you go off where they're at in their career or what they're doing, what their vocational calling is. And so whoever you are, whatever you do, If you work in government, if you work in business, if you work in the arts, if you work in education, whether you are, whether you are a stay-at-home parent or a CEO, if you're a retiree, if you're a janitor or a construction worker, a school teacher, if you work in the oil field, wherever you work, wherever you go, if you're wearing a suit or scrubs at your job, you are still made to be filled with the Spirit of God. That is what is professed in this moment, that it's for everybody. It's not, just for, it's not just for certain people, but it's for those who receive the Spirit, and that can be anyone. And what convicted me most is not just that no one's too young for God's Spirit to move through them and use them, but that no one is too old. Obviously, everybody's having a lot of fun with the, the face app phenomenon this week. Uh, according to Forbes, face app was the number one app downloaded for iPhones in 121 countries, which just tells me that across all cultures, we like to laugh at each other. That's what that means. Uh, and in, in that spirit, I'll, I'll get in on the fun for half a second. So here's my staff photo, and, uh, and then here's my aged photo years, from, years down the road. It's pretty rough. I don't like looking at it. That's why I'm not staring at the screen. If you're on podcast, bless you. Don't go look this up. You're not missing anything. I promise. You know, we look at those photos and we laugh, you know, and, and part of us kind of grimaces like, oof, that's rough. But 
but one of the things I was reflecting on was thinking, man, this is, uh, there's, there's another undercurrent in our culture. And that is that many of us have bought into the narrative that when the wrinkles come, the relevance goes. Like social media today is so quick to lift up and, and, and point out like young thought influencers and thought leaders and influencers. Those, like what's interesting to me is like, you go on Instagram, it's rare, maybe impossible. It's a unicorn if you find a 67-year-old thought leader on Instagram. It just doesn't happen like that in our world. And as a result, I'm concerned that we, we are seeing a generation grow up who are starved for lived wisdom. And who are feeding on, it sounds pretty good, post and quotes online. And that, it, it just, it's the type of thing that I, I was working through and wrestling with that I was convicted reading this passage thinking, even in my own heart, I too easily buy into the young is better mentality. And here, even on the day of Pentecost, I see that is a lie. Like that, that I needed to repent this week. I found myself in tears. I'll just be honest with you guys, wrestling and thinking, God, forgive me that I would be more expectant of your spirit to move and work through in our, our student ministry or with our young adults than I am with our senior saints. Because throughout, throughout the Bible, there are these, these elderly people who seem like they're too far gone, that they're too old, that they've hit spiritual retirement of some sort. And then those are the people God calls out when he reaches out to Abraham and to Sarah. And then even in the Gospels, when, when he reaches out to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth in the Gospel of Luke or to Simeon and Hannah, these, these older saints who are waiting at the temple and then they get to see Jesus. And if, if God was doing that then, I have to look at this passage and say, God is doing it today. That there are senior saints and we need your influence. We need your wisdom. We need the Spirit's work through you for the sake of the church. Because there is no such thing as spiritual retirement when it comes to the work of the Spirit of God. And I thought about people who have been an example of that in my life. One of them is a man named Ben Merrill. Uh, ben retired at 65. I know, it's kind of classic retiree age. Re- retired at 65 uh, from a, a, a very great ministry in Fullerton, California. He was uh, a lead pastor for a long time and uh, led Eastside Christian Church to be this thriving church. was reaching thousands of people. And then he retires. But what was unexpected was that a few years later, he accepted a call to a church of 150 people out in the suburbs of St. Louis. He's like, going back to work. Well, then he led that church for the rest of his 60s, then into his his 70s, then into his early 80s. And when Ben Merrill retired for the second time at 83, that little church that started with 150 people, Harvester Christian Church, at that time, at his retirement, was at a weekly attendance average of over 3,000 people. That God had used this man to continue to lead, and then he didn't stop. After he retired for the second time, he started to be a mentor and a coach who invests in and teaches and trains and pours into young leaders and preachers. And I know that because I've been one of them. And I've sat at his feet at retreats and in workshops where he pours out his wisdom, but even references like different surveys and stats about church leadership. And the more I listened, I realized, here's a man, the, the, the retreat I went on with him, he was in his 90s. And he's referencing surveys and stats that aren't from the 80s, that aren't, that aren't like from some back in the day. Like he's referencing stuff that came out very recently because he's still doing his homework. He's still leaning in. God is still using him. And it's an example that there is just no such thing as spiritual retirement. God is continuing to work through every follower of Jesus until we go home to be with Jesus. Let Pentecost remind us of that today.
So the Spirit spreads like fire. I'll be honest, that's my favorite part of this to get to preach. And what we're about to turn to, to be consistent with the fire metaphor, may not be as easy to hear. Certainly for me, it won't be as easy to preach. The Spirit doesn't just spread like fire. Part of what we see in the Spirit's work is that the Spirit refines like fire. In the Gospel of Luke, a prophet named John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. And here's part of how he describes Jesus' ministry. John the prophet says that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I've seen that before and I was like, what? what's going on with that? Well, the more I started looking, I realized I initially thought, oh, that must be pointing to the day of Pentecost with the tongues of fire. And it's not. You read the rest of John's sermon, some theologians call it the fire sermon because he references fire quite a bit, but the fire is often tied to some kind of judgment, to the idea that really in Jesus' ministry over and over again, he, uh, he blesses and burns in equal measure. He brings the Spirit, but he also brings some things that singe the religious leaders. And there are some who are blessed by what he has to do and say, and there are others who are reviled by it. That there's this line in the sand aspect to who Jesus is. That you're in or out. And, and even started looking at messianic prophecies about Jesus and about the work that he would do. I want to show you one from Malachi 3. The prophet writes and says that the Messiah, that is Jesus, will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. You know, silver's relatively common in, uh, in our world and in a lot of households. There's some of you listening to me right even now. Right now, you have a silver, uh, you have a bracelet made of silver, a necklace or some earrings or a ring. Maybe uh, you got coins in your pocket. But um, if you look at like silver ore that's unrefined, it's pretty uh, unremarkable. It's a shiny rock. You know, like if you look at a picture like this, it's, you just, you kind of see it and you're like, okay, I see a little bit of the, the glimmer uh, in there, the, 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 the sparkles, but at the same time, like there's a lot of work to be done. It's just a shiny rock. And in the refining process, there's a lot that needs to be broken up and there's a lot that needs to be burned away so that just the silver is perfected and refined. This is how Jesus' ministry is described. And when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples, it's a pretty famous exchange in John 14 through 16 where Jesus promises what sometimes gets translated the advocate or the counselor or the comforter. Uh, the Greek transliteration is paraclete, which just means one who draws up alongside. The, that we as followers of Jesus are not left alone as orphans, but instead there's one who draws up alongside us. And that's the Spirit. Now, we love those, that idea of the comforter. But, but part of what Jesus says in that same discourse where he promises the Spirit, he says, when he, that is the, the paraclete, when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're listening and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure what you believe, I don't blame you if this might be the most offensive part of the message for you. We love the idea of the fire that, that spreads and, and, and in, is inclusive and invites in, but we struggle sometimes with the fire of the Spirit who works to refine and prove wrong. Now, when you hear that, this isn't just like in a debate. 
This isn't like, oh, intellectually, you're right. I guess I was wrong. I see your train of logic. This isn't, that's not what this is about. This is about the idea of conviction. That the Spirit does something in us to make us see that the way of the world, the direction in which the world he- is heading, the narrative of the world that says I can do whatever I want and as long as I'm not hurting anybody or, and, and, as, and, if, and if I can get what I want, I should pursue my desires, I should do all these things. I'm right. And the Spirit says, no, you're wrong. And the reason this can be so vital and so gracious is because the Spirit knows the only way to experience real life the life that is truly life, abundant life, is to turn to Christ. And so the Spirit continues the witness of Jesus, proving us wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean? Jesus goes on to explain. He's proving the world, the Spirit's proving the world wrong about sin because they do not believe in Jesus. If there's nothing wrong with me, if there is no ultimate right or wrong, then why do I need a savior? Why do I need someone to save me from my sins? See, as Christians, we don't just believe that Jesus is a great teacher or that he's some kind of a life coach or that he's some kind of a a, a guide. In some ways, he he does teach. He does guide. But Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins. And if we don't recognize that, we will be proved wrong someday. Because we believe only Jesus can save Only by his name can we be saved. Only by his blood can we have forgiveness from sin. And so the Spirit lovingly points us towards what is true. And if we choose what is false, the Spirit is saying, that's not right. But not only that, the Spirit proves the world wrong regarding righteousness. Righteousness isn't what I think is right or what I feel is right. Righteousness, Jesus goes on to explain, there's only one who's going to the Father. And that's Jesus because he was perfectly righteous that he lived in accordance with God's will, and that when Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, he not only was a perfect sacrifice, but he then, for everyone who would put faith in Jesus, Jesus offers them his righteousness. And says, now, now anybody who's baptized is clothed with Christ, credited with his perfect life. Now, why does that matter? Well, sin and righteousness matter because of the last word the Spirit proves the world wrong about, and that's judgment. Listen to me very closely. I do not want to play scare tactics with anybody, but I want to be true to what the Spirit has testified to. We believe someday everyone will be called to account in front of the creator and king of the world and that there will be a judgment. There will be a moment where you, where I stand before Jesus Christ, the judge of the world, and in that moment, the only thing that will save me And keep me from a condemning verdict is Jesus Christ. My faith in him. And so if that's true, if everything I just said is true, and I know for some of you that's a big if, but if that's true, then the Spirit testifying and proving us wrong is the most loving thing the Spirit can do. To lead us to faith in Christ. To have come to faith in Christ means that you recognize at some point you go, I was wrong. That's what we mean by repentance. This idea of I'm turning around, I'm giving up my way or the world's way of doing things and I want to give my life to Jesus and experience the saving work because he gave his life for me. So, that's what the Spirit does to refine out in the world. But inside the church, once, once we come to faith in Christ, the Spirit's refining work continues to help us live into this salvation. 
Now, to be true to what the Bible says, this is not a refining work that again and again and again ties back to fire. In fact, the language gets tied more to putting something to death, uh, putting to death the sin in our lives, or taking every thought captive, or that God prunes away unfruitful parts of our lives so that we can bear more fruit for him. So the fire, the fire language doesn't, metaphor doesn't carry throughout the rest of scripture, but the sense of refining and perfecting is the same. Let me give you an example. Romans 8, 12 through 13. A church leader named Paul writes and says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, we listen to that one. Man, that's harsh. In a sense, you're right. It very much is. Because when, when Paul writes and talks about putting to death the flesh or the misdeeds of the body, this language isn't, isn't specifically just tied to my body. I don't want you to just hear that. What's, what, a better sense of it is to understand that that way of the world, that narrative that says that I'm in charge and I get to decide and I can do whatever I want and there are no consequences, that that's what's being put to death in us. The basis on which we live our life. Here's another way that Paul says it in a, in Galatians, letter to a different church, in a chapter that's all about the Spirit, all of a sudden, Paul writes this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul writes and says, look, what Jesus did on the cross for your sin, now you're living into the reality that that old way of life, that old thinking with you in charge has also been put on the cross. So how does this work in our lives? One of the things that I've wrestled with is realizing that if, if the Spirit is leading me to be more like Jesus, then that automatically means the Spirit is leading me to be less like the world. And that means, well, if it means that the Spirit is now present in my life, that the Spirit makes me aware, the Spirit's presence makes me see my life differently now because the Spirit is present. Here's, here's a way to think about it. This isn't a perfect metaphor, but I hope it helps. Uh, so in college, there'd be times where I would go to a movie with some friends. We'd go to the theater and laugh and go, man, what a great movie. And then I'd come home on break and I'd, and, I, and I'd be like, mom, dad, man, saw this great movie. We should watch it together, you know, after my younger brothers go to bed. And, uh, and so we go to Blockbuster. And if, if you don't know what Blockbuster is, just ask somebody older. That's partly why we need lived wisdom. So people will tell you what Blockbuster is. So we go to Blockbuster, we get a movie and we come back and, uh, and, and then I sit down next to my, my mom and dad and watch the same movie. And, you know, minute or two in, all of a sudden, like, you know, four-letter words, and I'm looking, I'm like, Mom, sorry, I didn't, I don't, I don't remember that. And then, there, then you'd get to a romantic scene that would, you know, just linger too long and be like, Mom, sorry, I just, I don't remember that. And then there'd be some jokes that were just wildly inappropriate that I did not remember as wildly inappropriate. But, Mom, I don't, I don't know. You know what? I think we saw a different version of this movie in the theaters. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and it, my mom's presence completely changed how I saw the film. Now, let me level with you. I shared that with a friend this week, just, just kind of wrestling through, like, hey, I'm thinking about this. And, and here's what my friend said. was like, hey, I, I completely get what you're saying. You just got to be careful because you don't want to make it sound like the Holy Spirit's trying to, like, ruin all our fun. And can I be honest? That bothered me. That I realized that that honest answer was a glimpse into my own heart. That there are ways that the Spirit works that hurt a little bit, that bother us because... We continually have to live into this new narrative that Jesus is Lord of my life and the Spirit is one who leads me into that way of life. 
But that means the Spirit is leading me out of the old way of life. And part of what I have to own and repent of on a daily basis is that sometimes I want the old way of life back because it's easier or because I think it's safer, because it's more comfortable, because in the moment it seems more gratifying and I have to let that stuff go. But that stuff hurts sometimes. Even as, even as little as being convicted about like whatever your favorite stream is on Netflix, that maybe some of that stuff is content you don't need to be discipled by for two hours every night. But to wrestle with that is like, oh man, such a bummer, so inconvenient, such a guilt trip. Ah. What we have to understand is that what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life is foundational work to redefine who I am. That's what salvation's been doing. And so I need you to listen really closely so you don't hear this as some legalistic guilt trip. You need to know the context in which Paul writes and says, we have to put to death the misdeeds of the body. There are some things in your life that need to die. Why, Paul? Here's the next sentence. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you've received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, you got to understand that the spirit is one who right alongside the refining fire that is putting to death and helping to burn away and convicting me about things that just need to go, that don't belong anymore. The spirit is saying, hey, You're not doing this so you can earn a place in God's house. It's already there for you. You're not doing this so you can stay saved. Jesus' saving work was enough. You're not doing this to keep God from ripping up the adoption papers. He never will. You belong to him. You are a child of God. This is the foundational work that the Spirit is doing in my life so that the refining work can happen. God gave me a perfect but painful object lesson of this this week. We had some foundation work done on our home. 41 piers put in. Um, what a joy. And uh, some of it was, in, was inside the house, which meant last weekend I had to help pull up, I had to pull up some of the boards in our hallway so they could get into the concrete. Well, I, I started doing that and initially like the first boards by, by the carpeted bedroom, like they're, they're not coming up easily at all. And I realized, I'm like, man, some of this is glued down. This is dumb. And I get some more up, but the farther I go, the glue is still there. And then I realized, there's no float. Someone has glued this hardwood straight to the concrete. Like a serial killer. <laughs> just a sick individual. Just wrong. So I do about two and a half hours just with the pry bar. I've gotten up barely a couple, a couple boards. And then the next day I have to go and I have to rent the power tool with the big old flathead, the demo hammer, and just go to town on that stuff. And I'm mad and I'm frustrated. It took forever. And here's the deal. I did all that so that that crew could actually get to the foundation stuff. There was more important work that needed to be done. And in our lives, there are some things the Spirit wants to refine and burn away and help us put to death. But some of that stuff is glued to us in ways we have a hard time acknowledging. That there's some stuff that defines us more than I want to admit, more than I wanted to realize. And now I have to say, Jesus, help me, empower me. Be, Holy Spirit, that power tool that helps me to get this stuff up and out of my life because there's way more foundational stuff that you're doing to realign me and say who I am and give me an identity. So God, forgive me for complaining about the floorboard. That stuff's got to come up and got to get out because now I'm a child of God. 
now covered in his love, that stuff doesn't belong anymore. And it becomes a joy to see God get it out of my life, to see him lead me, even when it's painful. It becomes a journey of trust to say, because I'm your child, I trust I trust how the Father is leading and, and, and sending the Spirit into my life to do these things. And so maybe, maybe you felt what some of the listeners on the day of Pentecost felt. They heard Peter preach this gospel, this saving work of a resurrected Jesus Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Man, of all these pictures, the Spirit is a gift who does this work in our lives. And if you're not a believer, if you're listening to this and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is your call. Repent, turn away from the way of the world, your way of doing life, and say, I, I, I want to be in on the Jesus way of life. I believe in him as my Lord and Savior who's died for me and who's risen from the grave. And through that, and aligning with him in the death, burial, and resurrection and baptism, Peter promises, you receive the gift, the Holy Spirit. Now, there were no Christians listening that day because a bunch of Christians had yet to get baptized and become Christians. But for those who are followers of Jesus today, you don't need to get baptized again, but maybe you do need to repent. In fact, I know you do because I know I need to on a daily basis to see the parts of my life that maybe are glued to the floor and say, Holy Spirit, I give it up. I surrender. Get it out of my life. You are purifying and perfecting me. I don't know what it is in your life, but the Spirit's bringing it up, I know. So for us, we just have to go, God, I trust your refining work. We are not, we are not consumed by his refining fire. We are perfected and purified. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your work in our lives to refine us, to perfect us, to purify us, to get out of our lives the things that don't belong anymore because you have made us your children. And through the Spirit, we get to call you Dad and not walk around afraid or scared, but instead knowing we are covered in your grace and love. I pray for those who aren't followers of Jesus that you would be calling them to this great promise of salvation through Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lead us and guide us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.